Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How old are you now? What are you, like 60? I just turned 60. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I want to try you... new adventures. You yeah, know? but it's, I mean, it's... um. There is that saying, you can't, can't teach an old dog new tricks. But, I mean, you can. You can learn anything at any age, but it, it doesn't get any easier. Was it terrifying getting in the pool? Yeah, I think that, I think that saying is null and void. I think, yeah. you know, that, that used to be the saying, and that was just stubbornness. Uh, but anyone who anyone who has seen <clears throat> the transition of my career um, from a chef to comedy and from comedy and, and quite a – um, you know, uh, politically incorrect, homophobic, sexist, racist, uh, misogynist comedian. You were you were savage. Yeah, I was savage. Uh, and then to transition out of that into a mental health advocate, I think um, we've broken the mold and we've mm. proved that people mm. can change it. You know, I, I often have people coming to me, you know, because at, at my mental health talks, you know, you've got to balance comedy with reality. And I do that. And, you know, people who like the comedy go, would you, you know, why you ever do stand-up? No. Why not? Because it's not who I am anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. And then they say, would you do Game of Two, uh, Game of Two Halves again? Hell no. <laughs> that, you know, that, is, that show was legendary at its time, though. At its time, yeah. 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 But it was like, it was like, you know, it was like a lot of programs from back in Benny Hill, you'd never have that mm. again. I mean, you know, and, and that's what it was for me. Yeah. It was the... It was the Benny Hill of our day, and yeah. that's where it should stay. Yeah, but I mean, even even like way more recent than Benny Hill. If you look at a show like Little Britain from yeah. say ten years ago, yeah, yeah. couldn't get away with that now. Um, yeah. Oh man, there's there's so much to um, so much to unpack with you. Uh, so so much to talk about because it's just been a hell of a life. Yeah, it's 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 bonkers. It's nuts. I, I, I introduced you as an, a fucking advocate. <laughs> I, I have <clears throat> had. A very fulfilling life, yeah. and you know, if I, if, you know, if on the day I was born, if I, you know, even five years ago, would I, would I have known where I was going to be, and do I know where I'm going to be in another five years? The answer is no. I'm just, mm. you know, I've, I, <clears throat> I've spent my whole life uh, with with no self esteem, always thinking everyone else is better, kids were better than me, faster, stronger, athletically more gifted than I was. And I spent my whole life looking for my purpose. And during that time, I spent my life like running down this long corridor, just kicking open doors, just mm. kicking open doors, making things happen. Um, in the last few years, I've realized that that was wrong. When you're going down the corridor of life and kicking open doors, hoping to find something, all you find is rooms with more doors. Yeah. So what I do now is I just... I am where I'm meant to be right now, and if there's a door that's open, I'll go in. That's the door I'm supposed to be in. There might be a lion in that door, but it's still where I'm supposed to be at that time. And, and Is that still like saying everything happens for a reason? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm just trying to go with the universe and go through the doors, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but always 
whether it's good or bad, appreciating that this is where I need to be. There's a lesson here. Mm. I don't know what the lesson is. There's a lesson here. <laughs> and become lesson, a parent. Yeah, and the lesson might be uh, stay the fuck away from life. <laughs> you know. Okay. So, um, but, I mean, you were you were a, a very successful comedian, like like a massive, massive star, as big as what you can get in New Zealand. But no comedian's ever going to be named Kiwi Bank New Zealander of the Year. It's weird, eh? That's phenomenal. So, okay, let's go all the way back. So, um, so you're from um, Fanua Pai? Yep, I yeah, grew, up in, Fanua Pai. grew up in Fanua Pai Village. So, what do you, what do you like as a kid? Um, I was one of those. So, I was a kid that never felt like I was good enough, as I said. And I was, um, you know, biggest hero in my life was my dad. Mm. And I always wanted to impress my dad. I wanted my dad to look at me in front of his mates and go, yeah, that's my boy, future all black, that's my boy. My old man wasn't that sort of, he didn't pat kids on the head, he booted them in the ass. I knew I was loved, but he was a man of few words. He just didn't show it, didn't show any sort no. of vulnerability or anything. No, never. A product, no. Do you think um, just a product of his time? Yeah, abs- 100%. Uh, I realize now that my dad didn't have a dad, so he didn't know how to be a yeah. dad. You know, he was just winging it as he went along, and for him it was work, and he taught me the four rules to being a man, protect your family, provide for your family, give your kids a better opportunity than you have, and never show weakness. And those four things for me added up to work. My love language with my kids was always money. Why? Because I didn't have any, you know. Uh, you know, we never went on holiday. So, you know, with my kids, we went to Fiji. We went to Raro. We went to all of these, Australia, places that I'd never been when I was a kid. So, uh, as a kid growing up, I had no self-esteem, uh, so I was loud and obnoxious. I did what most Kiwi kids do. You know, I was just super loud, Yeah. you know, yeah. and um, always trying to press my dad. You know, sadly, it couldn't happen. So I was always looking to be world champion at something. Mm. This was a standard that I thought my dad had set for me. I had to be – so I was a great starter of projects. Yeah. Uh, rugby, you know, soccer, anything. I was just looking to be a world champion, running. I even tried running. I tried everything. And as soon as I knew I couldn't be world champion, like better than average wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, best of my school, not good enough. I had to be world champion. And so I was always looking for that thing. And um, at eight years old, I, a mate of mine told a joke in front of a whole lot of kids and no one laughed and they started mocking him and tried to get him to tell <laughs> a joke again. And I told the joke. I told exactly the same joke, and everyone laughed. Why? What was the was it timing? Was it uh, delivery? I, I have no clue. People <laughs> often say, you know, like, oh, you know, you're, you know, telling jokes must be really hard for you, and you know, for me, it's easy. It's like saying to Eric Clapton, must be hard to play the guitar. Mm. For him, it's easy. I, I don't know what it is. I just had a gift for it. I knew I was good at it, and it saved me. Like I, I never hit puberty till I was nearly eighteen years old. So if you know when you're going through high school in West Auckland, and you know people whose balls haven't dropped get mocked mercilessly, <laughs> um, so you have to use the skills that you've got. Mm. So I had two skills: one uh, was comedy, but two, I wasn't afraid of getting knocked out. So I would just I would always throw first punch, and I would just get in there, and you know, so people went, "This kid's crazy." So I wasn't picked on. So my comedy that really helped. Yeah. My, my angry, my anger, I guess that that really helped too. I was four foot eleven, but you know I got away with a lot of stuff because I was a crazy kid. Yeah. Were, were, were you an angry kid? 
Were yeah, you, I was. Yeah, well, like, why? Why are we angry? When, when you're striving to, you know, when you're striving for the approval of the the big people in your life and you're not getting it, you, you got two options. You curl up in a ball and you cry or you lash out. Mm. I was a lasher out, you know. Um, so, but but comedy was always my go-to. And I told my dad I want to be a comedian. He went, yeah, you can't be a fucking clown. That's not a job. You got to, you know, like you've, you, you, you got to have a, you got to have a trade, mate. What, what was, what was your dad's job? What was his line of work? So my dad was a salesman. Oh, yeah. My dad was a salesman. He ended up a gardener. He was, yeah, he was. My, my dad was a very charismatic, good-looking fella. Great sportsman. You know, um, he, he could, he could play any musical instrument. He could play any instrument. Couldn't read music, but if he couldn't play it, like one day when I was eight years old, he bought home a set of bagpipes. The next day, every cat in the neighborhood wanted to sleep with those bagpipes. He could, he could do anything. Amazing. He was a, uh, a great sportsman, single figure handicapped golfer, left hand, right handed, mm. good footy player, good looking fellow with lots of friends. I want to be just like my dad. So, Leo, you, you, the first two things you said about your dad were good-looking and charismatic, and yeah. uh, you, you tick those two boxes. No. Don't you think? No. Oh, you've got when a, I was a kid, like, as a kid, I was an ugly child. <laughs> no, seriously. Four foot 11, buck teeth, big ears, rubber lips. Yeah. had a massive head. Like, it looks normal now, dummy. It looks normal now. But you, I was born with this head. Right. Imagine this head on a little <laughs> bubble's body. Funny. I could show you a picture of me and my David Bain top <laughs> with, my, with, my, with my massive head. So I was you know, <laughs> like a bubble dummy. I, I remember, this is true. My brother was really good looking, and he was dad's favorite. He got a nickname. His nickname was Butch. He was a good looking kid. And uh, I remember a girl I had a crush on, Debbie Lazarus, I'll never forget, you know, and I used to go to the pool and watch her in a bikini and, you know, lie on my little bone and go, ah, 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 she's amazing. And I remember saying to her, she was one of my best mates, right? And I said to her, you know, so me and my brother used to play this game, I'm better than you at this, I'm better than you at this. He was an artist and all kinds of things. And uh, I remember saying to Deb, oh, like, I'm better than, I'm better looking than Brian. And she went, <laughs> no, I went, like, and like, I, I was crushed. I was seriously mm. crushed because I always thought I was a good. And she went, no, and um, and she said, "Have you seen your head?" And I was like, <laughs> what, what's wrong with my head? And then at the round about the same time, I was at Henderson Square, you know, trying on uh, a, a pair of pants. And it was the first time, you know those mirrors where they have the mirrors connecting in the what's name? Yes, in the dressing room, yeah. And it was the first time I saw the side of my head. I looked like that character out of Enemy Mine with Lewis Gossett Jr., <laughs> that big cone at the back of your head. I tell you. I, uh, no, you're exaggerating. No, no. This is comedy no, for no, exaggeration. No, no. It, it traumatized me so much that I tried to get avoid people looking at me side on. Seriously, it was it was such a traumatizing experience because you only ever see your face. Mm. You don't. <laughs> no, seriously, you don't see. I've got to find this picture for you. Yeah, uh, picture no, it didn't happen. I. I feel like it's everyone's got their own insecurities, yeah, and I feel right. like this was no, yours. Right. But this, it was in your own head, though. Yeah, and of course it was your in own my giant head, head. But that's my own giant head. But that <laughs> was enough. That was always going to be yeah. enough. Uh, where am I? You love this. Uh, so this is how look, look how young I am. You know how, you know how old I am, there, Dom. You look like you're. Um, you said you hit puberty at eighteen. You got a moustache there. I'm sorry, it's twenty-two. That there's thirty-six. Thirty-six. Thirty-six years. Fuck. See, 
what I'm seeing there is that's a that's a handsome dude. That, that is a handsome. Yeah, dude. that's a good that, looking man. I did grow it. My my dad said you would grow. I'd grow into my head, and I did, <laughs> and I did. Where is this bloody picture? You can never find them when you yeah, need them. Yeah, no, because it's fake news. Yeah, it's fake news. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what it is. Oh my goodness gracious me! I can't find it, but just trust me. I've shown it that I've shown it at um, talks when I give my corporate talks, and and people go, mm. "Oh my God, look at you!" Yeah. No, I can't find it. I'm sorry. Okay, no worries. It doesn't exist. I, I don't. I don't it's believe it anyway. I, I feel like it was it was in in your own mind. Yeah, yeah. Like, like most of these things. Like, yeah. Okay, so so um, so you crack that joke at school, and you you get the laugh that the other kid doesn't. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's like a it's like a dopamine rush, like it's yeah. a it's a real adrenaline rush. So then, why why do you become a chef? Because uh, my dad wanted me to have a trade, right? And I, also, when, when are we talking here? Like seventies, seventies, eighties, yeah, nineteen seventies. So I'm guessing I, like comedy wasn't really in a viable. Nineteen seventy-seven. I went and worked at our um, our Matador restaurant in Auckland, New Zealand's first licensed restaurant. Then I went and worked at Bonaparte's, Fisherman's Wharf, Palomino at Henderson, and ended up finishing my apprenticeship at Al Trovador. I went to um, chef school. I was in the same class as Judith Tabron. From Seoul and Meccano, one of the girls. Wow. She's in New Zealand's Chef's Hall of Fame. Yeah. You know, but she. Were you good? No, I was terrible. I'll tell you how terrible I was. Like, like, I'll, well, put it, I'll, be... no, I'll put it this way. Okay. I'll put it to you this way. I can copy anything a chef shows me and, and replicate it perfectly. I, I don't have the ability to look at a box of ingredients and go, I'm going to turn it into this. I remember one time. Judith got 10 out of 10 for a sauce that she made. And when she wasn't looking, I grabbed her sauce and took it up for marking, right? <laughs> and I took it up, and the freaking teacher gave me 8 out of 10. Yeah. And, you know, me being me, I was like, ha, what a load of shit that is. I gave, this is Judith's sauce. She gave her 10 out of 10, and he only gave me 8 out of 10. She goes, yes, but Judith bought charisma with it. What does that mean? Well, that's part of cooking. Right, right. Judith would always be immaculate. There wouldn't be a spot of sore. I was always covered in shit. My hat wasn't starched. So, you know, so I I did cooking. Um, You know, I was trying to find myself early, and um, I joined, um, uh, I started prospecting for the mongrel mob. Did you really? Yeah. Why? Why did that seem like a good idea? Well, I was trying to fit in. Right, right. You just try and fit in. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to find myself. These guys were looking super cool for me. I just started drinking. Mm. You know, I'm, I was smoking weed at 13, and just so for me, it was just uh, you know, it was part of a family. Mm. And then uh, we we as a prospect, we had to go and throw some uh, Molotovs cocktails at the Highway 61 pad. Me and another prospect. Uh, we did that, and they chased us. And it was only a Sandringham Road accident. And they chased us, went to run back to the car where the prayers was, and he'd taken off. So we were on our own. I'm running down the road, find him down the road. These guys are right up our ass, jump into the car and think we're safe. And instead of driving away, he tried to run them over. And they were diving. We were on the footpath, you know, just. And I was like, whoa, what the hell is this? And then we get when we left. I go, what would happen if you know you'd hit them? And he just looked at me and he started laughing. And I went, oh, I was going to be driving the car. You know that was the deal. And yeah. at that point there, I went, I'm not going to jail for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no way in hell I'm doing this. So I joined the Merchant Navy. 
Right. When I saw my uncle and joined the Merchant Navy and went away to sea for the next 14 years. Oh, is that right? Is that, is that after Sheffing? Yeah, no, yeah. So, right. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I joined the – I'd qualified with my yeah. London City and Guilds, and uh, the first job I went and got was, um, um, yeah, I shipped out. Right. You enjoy that? No, I hated it. Why did you do it for so long? Um, because the money was so good. Right. You know, right. And, the, and the time on, time off, um, it was horrible. You know, I just got into, <laughs> I just got into a relationship. I just got married and, you know, my wife was cheating on me and, you know, there was no communication. Mm. It was letters back in those days. You right. wrote letters, you know. Uh, you had a phone call and she had to be home and you'd run down to the end of the wharf to make a phone call, collect, and she's not home. So for me, it was trauma, mm. just constant trauma. So I just turned to drugs and alcohol. You can get all the drugs you want and get all the alcohol you want just to survive, you know, and then get home and fight mm. and all kinds of, you know, with, the, with, with yeah. the person you're supposed to be in love with. And, yeah, so it was horrible. It was very traumatic that whole oh, it's time. it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. So that was you, – you're married again now. You've only been married twice? No, three times. Oh, three times. So, so, so the first one failed when you were in the Navy? Uh, the first one failed when I walked out. Right, I, right. I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I still loved it, but I just couldn't do it anymore. It was too traumatizing, and I remember, I remember that dad happened, and I remember how it happened. She was at the Inner Circle Pub in Avondale, and I just got home from sea, went down and saw her, and went, you know, sorry, we're done. And she just gave me a big hug, and he goes, I understand, and you know, that was it. Just mm-hmm. walked away on that one, and straight into the next one. And I you, you guys have any kids from the first marriage? Or no, no, she no. had a daughter. Right, right. <clears throat> uh, she was a lot older than me too. She was about eleven years older than yeah. I was. And then I uh, met my next wife, second wife, and we had three kids, and I'm on my third wife now. Yeah, yep. yeah. Oh, okay. So when did the comedy start? Where did you so, did you find you sort of um, even subconsciously like honed that when you're in the navy, like just cracking yeah, jokes that's in front exactly of exactly what yeah. happened. So I was, I I spent a lot of my time on the inter island ferries. And so there was always a big audience. We had big crews there, and there was always a big audience. And I remember he used to crack jokes all the time. And then a friend of mine, this is a good story. Never told the story. A friend of mine uh, called uh, Max Wilby. Um, Max said to me, you know, you're a really funny guy. You should think about being a comedian. And I was like, oh, don't be silly, Max. You know, I wouldn't even know how to do that. He said, well, what I'm thinking is every time you crack a joke – and people laugh, write it in a book. Write it in a book. Write the punchline in the book. If you think of a funny thought, put it in the book. Put it in the book. And then when you go to write your comedy, if you're looking for a punchline, go to your book and there'll be something funny in there. I did it the other way. What I what I did was I you know, I still got the book. But in this thing I would put all of these jokes and punchlines and then and instead of um writing something to suit I would go backwards. I would start with the punchline and go backwards. The big mistake I noticed when I first started comedy was comedians would start out with a shaggy dog story, and it would be a really good story. What, is, what does that mean, a shaggy dog story? Well, it means what you... I've got a really great setup. It's like I'm taking you down a street to show you a house, and you're looking at all these fantastic houses, and you go, oh, fuck, this is going to be good. And then you get down to the end of the street, and yeah. it's an empty section. Yeah. And you're thinking, what the fuck you bring me down here for? <laughs> I always started with the flash house down the end of the street right. and worked my way backwards. And then if the shaggy dog story wasn't funny, I would always have funny to fall back on. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was my so – end with the high. 
end with a high always. Right. So for me, my comedy career started out with the character. Who am I? Who am I? Well, I'm the Māori boy, so I'm going to use that. There are no Māori comedians, Jeremy Corbett, you know, John Bridges, David mm. Downs, yeah. all of these white, Willie DeWitt, Mark, yeah. Mark Wright, they're all white. So, so I'm, I'm going to use that card. And, mm. and I always, you know, so my persona, I loved Eddie Murphy. I love Richard Pryor. So good suits are important. That look was important. And Billy, Billy T. James, was he like a big influence where you're like, oh, I, can, I can do that sort of shtick? Yeah, no, of- so you see, Billy was a musician. Yeah. And Billy used to tour around England, so, you know, he was playing in a lot of those cosy club type uh, arrangements. And so he watched a lot of English comedians, so he brought their jokes home, mm. you know. And, and true story, when I was 15 at Al Trovador, we turned into a cabaret. So Billy played at uh, our restaurant. Uh, Wednesday to Saturday, two shows a night. So I got to watch the legend. I saw him up mm. close. I cooked his meal. I listened to the stories of him and Tui Taka and the show band. So I got to spend two years of my life. And this is two years before Radio Times even came out, Billy's first show. Right. So I got to see him in the beginning. And, and I've always been really resentful that every documentary that's been out about Billy there's a whole lot of young comedians or comedians from my era who didn't know the man at all yeah, that were yeah. talking about him like they were experts. And I was just like, no one ever asked You never met the fuck. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So we spend, you know, I spent a lot of time with the guy. I spent a lot of time with Tui Tekka. I remember when he was living in a flat in Mount Wellington, a shitty flat, and he had a Rolls Royce. Why? Because no other Maldives had him. <laughs> you know, so we used to go around there and watch, you know, watch Tui get into his car and the seat automatically adjusts and Missy will get in. So, you know, I, I worked as a roadie in these bands when, like, you know, I was the only one uh, at the restaurant that had a ute. The boys needed their gear. So they used to take me to the Crypt nightclub. They'd take me to pubs when I'm 17 years old. Mm. It's 20 to get in. When the police came in, they'd hide me under the table. You know, I just... I, you know, I, I had a really, really, really rich life yeah. where I got to, you know, spend. And I always felt like I was older than everybody else. You, do you know what I mean? But you, wait, the photo you showed me before of you in your 30s, you look very, you look younger than everyone else. Yeah, but, but I always associated with people older okay. than myself. Okay. I didn't, asso- like, I just found that young people were dumb. Or people were, your same age. Yeah. The, well, I was, you know, they were into girls, but, you know, girls were unavailable to me. I had no hair on my nuts. So, you know, I, I avoided girls. <laughs> that's, a, that's a look now. That's yeah. a look. <laughs> but, but, but I avoided. And I mean, it's a true story. I remember saying to my dad at 17, I go, what the fuck is, what the fuck is going on, dad? <laughs> and he just laughed and he goes, you'll thank me for that. You'll thank me for What, that. being a late bloomer? Yeah, being a late bloomer. How so? Well, because when I'm, you know, when I'm yeah, 33, yeah. I look, you know, yeah, look I still young. look young, you know. Yeah. I was asked my age right up till I was in pubs, right up till I was 36 years old, you know. I'm 60. I think I'm a pretty good nick for a 60 Yeah, you look great. Yeah. You look great. God, I was a late starter as well. I remember that the first time I saw some wispy blonde pubes on my nuts, I was like 15 or 16. I was so excited. Oh, well, I tell you. This <laughs> so is, excited. This is a true story. I remember this Anne McGregor. Who said to me one time talking about it? I said, I got hair on my balls. She went, <laughs> she went This is what she said. She went, I was about 50. She went, White ones. <laughs> I was like, like, How do you know? Oh, yeah. How do you know? Okay, so, so the, um, 
So the comedy thing, you, you started quite late, eh? When did you do your first stand-up? Say like 30-something? Uh, 30 30, 30, 35. That's a fucking late start. Yeah, yeah. Why? Really Why? Start. What was it? Well, did you want to do it before and you were just nervous and you kept putting oh, it there off? there was or? never any opportunity, really. Okay. Um, so I broke my leg playing rugby. And um, I was – I saw a comedy advertised at um, – uh, there was a pub on um, – Albert Street, I can forget the name of it. And I went in there and I watched these guys and, you know, eh, eh, lasted about half half an hour. You're just sitting there thinking, oh, I could do better. Yeah, that was shit. Yeah, there yeah. Was, there were more vaudeville type, you know, um, magician-y type comedians. Okay. Was, and, it, was that just what people were doing at the time? Or? Uh, yeah, a guy called Late Night Mike was there and, you know, it just it, – I was bought – I, I travelled overseas. We bought – you know, film of Richard Pryor, of you yeah. know, Eddie Murphy. And so I, that was my style of Bill Cosby. I, that was, so my style of comedy was stories about life. These guys were making up stories. So then um, I went to Kitty O'Brien's. I saw that there was a thing down there at Kitty O'Brien's and I watched and I watched and I thought, these guys are so good. And I sneakily filmed. I had a, had a bag, a camera, an old VHS camera. God, it must and, have been massive, like a handicam. Yeah, in a bag. <laughs> and I just sat my bag on my knee and I filmed. Not to steal material yeah. and go home and, and, and it. break it down and find out why things weren't funny and why things were funny. And then I saw a guy called Andrew Clay. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Andy Clay is the fucking originator mm. of New Zealand stand-up. Never, ever, ever got credit. But he was the man that started comedy and music. Everyone else before Andy Clay was a fake-ass bitch. He was the man. Why? Because he told stories about life. Is that right? I, I, about, I, I know Andrew. Like I met him through radio circles. He was at Holdecky for a while. Really? Is that right? life. He, he'd come back from Australia. He'd done the hard yards in the stand-up comedy scene in Australia and survived. He came back and talked about living with his grandmother in Selwyn Village and, and you know, like sneaking out of the car and sneaking into her thing because, you know, young people couldn't live there. He was a fucking genius. And I went, that's a stand-up comedian. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So the next, uh, I went home and I practiced the routine. I was, wasn't was like everyone else. I had two kids, so I set up in my garage a couch, and I had all their toys there. And one of the big mistakes that people would ask is they would ask the audience a question, and they'd only have one answer for the 90% answer. So there's three answers an audience can give you. 
the answer that everyone expects, the out-of-the-box answer, and I'm an asshole. I just want to destroy you answer. And if you don't have a response for each one of those three, you're dead in the water. Mm. So I used to, little things that they would do that, that have one great joke and they wouldn't walk and they would stay there for another extra 10 minutes trying to get it back and never get it back. So I just learned all of their mistakes. And uh, so the next week, uh, I had my little wee routine. Now, how many minutes are we talking? Like five uh, minutes, ten minutes, ten minutes. So, ten minutes. but here was the deal, right? I studied, mm-hmm. so I took the Rolling Stones approach to comedy. So, uh, the, lots of heroin. <laughs> no, well, no. <laughs> we'll get, so, get to that. Get to that no. <laughs> so the Rolling Stones used to sing Chuck Berry covers, right? Right, and then they'd, they'd throw in one or two original songs. So I went in with some joke jokes, which I put myself in. And so instead of three guys, went about, me and a couple of mates went to this right, bar, right. you know. Um, so I started out with, um, with lo- joke jokes with local references. Uh, and then I had a couple of original jokes. And, you know, I got there and, the, you know, so I walked into the pub looking like Eddie Murphy, had my suit on. I was ready to go. Said to Paul Horan, hey, uh, how do I get on the stage? <laughs> you come back in six weeks, we have a rookie night. And I go, who's on? And he run through the list. I said, look, I've been watching you guys for the last six weeks. I think all your comedians are shit. I think I'm funnier than them. I pulled out 400 bucks out of my wallet. I said, here's $400. If no one laughs or anyone walks out, you can buy the whole bar drinks and you'll never see me again. He snatched the money out of my hand. Went out the back. Four hundred bucks. So this was um like say twenty five, twenty five, thirty years ago. That's yeah, a that's yeah. a shit ton of that's cash. A shit ton of cash. Yeah, and it yeah. would have bought the whole bar drinks. Yeah. So uh, he went out the back and he must have said to them because they all poked their heads out the door and they were <laughs> looking and they're all nodding. Yeah, put them on. Now I was fully prepared to go first, right? Mm. This is how much I study. I'm ready to go first. First was the hardest. Comedy wasn't a thing in New Zealand, but I was ready for it. Mm. David Downs come out and went, Sir, you're the new guy. I went, Yeah, yeah. He says, where do you want to go in the lineup? And in my head, I went, are you fucking shitting me? You're giving me the choice? Instantly, I said, last than the second. He went, tough slot. I go, what the fuck do you know? This is how naive you are. So how it used to work was three comedians in the first, two in the second, and then the headliner. What used to happen, the three top com- first comedians had a hard time because no one knew what comedy was. Right, right. So it was trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. By the first break, that have all had beers, we get it now. So they're with the next guy that's come. Okay, and the guy at the second, the last guy in the second, got the easiest run. By the third, I've had more drinks. Now I'm funnier than you. Yeah, so yeah. I took you know thing in uh, last in the second. So when it come time to be packed house, when it come time to me getting on. David Downs get up, say, hey, we've got this Maori guy who thinks he's funnier than everyone else. And everyone had killed up to that point. Mm. So the audience, ooh, you know, don't worry, don't worry. You know, it's his first time. If he's, if, if he's no good, we'll all laugh, which got a big laugh. Yeah. You know? And if he's terrible, we'll start cheering and we'll start. And so everyone's right into it. And then, hey, here he is. So the first thing I did was I, I put David Downs down straight away. Fat, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then the... The South Africans were touring at the time, and it was the first time Chester um, 
Chester Williams, the first black guy, was touring with yeah. them. So I had, you know, I had a joke using an accent, you know. Oh, Chester, the South Africa, yeah, you know, Chester, you know, but someone's got to carry the bags. And, you know, and people found that funny. It's racist, but it was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I moved into my joke jokes. But, I, you know, so the joke jokes was was about me going to Shortland Street party. Everyone was short. I'm standing there at this party. I look over in the corner. There's Tim Ware Morrison and Paul Holmes standing under a coffee table. I saw Belinda Todd, who was big at the time. Yeah, I thought, yeah. wow, she's sexy. I said, hey, Belinda, want to come back to, uh, want to come back to my place, you know, for coffee and then we'll make love. She, oh, no, I've got my menstrual cycle. I said, sweet, I got my ute outside, chuck it on the back. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You'll be cancelled for that now. Yeah, I know. But so this was huge. Yeah. Like, you know, and and I got to my second to last joke, and it fucking slayed. I had one more joke, but the second to last joke slayed, and I was like, that's me. Hey, you've been great. Thanks very much. And I went off to the chance of more, 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 Mm. more. Little did I know when I went up, and this is how fucking crazy my life is. Ben Alton had walked in as the MC was introducing me. Ben Alton, young ones, Black Adder. Uh, yeah, now one of the massive author, yeah, best-selling yeah. author. King He's of on a book tour. And he comes in, he sees the intro, he sees me smash it, he comes out the back. I'm standing in the corner, I'm going, yeah, I fucking own this, man. And Ben Alton comes over, he goes, oh, like, you know, just watch your gig, you know, is that your first time? Yeah. He said, that can't be your first time. So we had this, guy, whether it was my first time, I said, I've done Family Yes, mate, if that was your first time, you're going to be famous. And I was like, holy shit, really? He goes, yeah, got to go, and he's out the back door. Wow. Everyone comes, what did Ben Alton say? I said, fucking Ben Alton said, I'm going to be famous. Yeah, and, and you were, like, straight away. You Metro Magazine uh, named you, like, a comedian of the year or whatever. Yeah, you were yeah, named yeah. New Zealand comedian yeah, of the yeah, year. Yeah, just... So the, the, the success happened really quickly. Yeah, real yeah. quick. But I, like, so the boys would go, let's go out and let's do this. I practiced. I went, so I filmed that performance and every performance after. Why? Because I wanted to know where I was making the mistakes. One of the things I used to do was I used to stroll backwards and forwards. I got seasick watching myself, (laughs) you know. Another thing that I used to do was rub my face. And so there's conscious things. And then another time, like, they didn't laugh at a joke that I thought was really funny. I watched the film back. I realized I'd stood on the punchline. Just when they're about to laugh, I panicked and went on mm. to the next one. So I stood on my punchline. So I learned to consciously count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. Yeah. Ah. And then I had a tactic where that wasn't the joke. That was the lead-in. And then the real punchline comes second. So I studied and I studied and I studied. And I had, because I'd always done, you know, uh, family gigs where the material always had to be new, every week I would change it. And Corbett used to come up to me and go, hey, man, you, you know you can use that stuff from last week. And I go, no, that's what you do, man. I'm fucking, you know, this was my arrogance, right? You needed that, yeah. though. I remember Paul Horan came up and gave me $20, you know, this night that I did my thing. And he said, you know, what's that for? He goes, no, no, that's that's your pay. You were you're so great. And I went, no, you keep it, man. I want to own this shit. Mm. That's you know that that was my arrogance. Yeah. Did um did did the others were you popular with other comedians or were they like oh this guy's a jerk? Yeah, probably. Well, but I feel but like I, I feel like you, you've probably got the cheek or the charisma to carry it off. But uh, well, you know, I could be whatever I want because I was the best. 
you know, there was only one guy better than me, and that was Andrew Clay. Yeah. Andrew Clay. So what did I do? I'd watch other comedians go up to Andy and try to make friends with him. He was like, fuck off. I'm not teaching you anything. He immediately became my best friend. Immediately. And him and I did the first stand-up comedy tour around New Zealand. Mm. Him and I were just glued together. And I learned as much. I just got as much knowledge out of him as I could. I watched him. He was a pro, man. I remember we did a gig down the line, and, you know, he's opening, and there's a whole lot of fucking Maldives in the audience, and they started chanting, fuck off, fuck <laughs> off, fuck <laughs> off, fuck off. So he brought me He brought mm. me on, and, you know, and these guys were like, oh, fuck it, and they started talking to the bar, and I'm like, true story. And I, you know, you can please beep this, but I went, I shut know. the fuck up, you black cunts. And they cracked up laughing. <laughs> it seems like oh, a, that's a high risk maneuver. And yeah, how would I? Yeah. This guy's fucking awesome. And Andy come running up and grabbed the microphone and said, hey, man, if I'd said that, you guys would have killed me. And this guy went, I thought we told you to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a killer. I did a killer half hour and had done 10 minutes. We went up to get paid and the publican says, I paid for one hour. This guy needed fucking 10 minutes. <laughs> and Andy went, well, get fucked. And he went back down and he got on the microphone <laughs> for exactly 20 minutes copying shit. But he did yeah. his shit. That's a pro. And then he, when he came off, we went up, now give us our fucking money. We're out of mm. here. You know, I just I love Andy Clay. Yeah. Why? Um. Yeah, and and it's um it's good that you're 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 giving him the praise that that uh, he he deserves. Why why don't you think he was as successful as what he should have been? Because he's a white guy. He's a white guy in 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 in, in a show where you know the stars of those uh, of those times because they were all involved were Jeremy Corbett, John Bridges, David. Dan. Yeah, well, they're all white guys. Yeah, but. They started the comedy. Right, right. So that, there was no way they were going to let in. Like, and I'm not saying this was a conscious yeah, decision. Yeah, This is not a conscious decision. But there was no way in hell another white guy was going to come along and take, you know, take their crown. And, yeah. You know, I'm not saying that they did it and they blocked them or anything. Yeah. But, but, you know, they were the ones that were picked by TV. Like, our first show on TV was a comedy gala, mm. and Andy was out there telling jokes, and um, I came out with a sign saying "Give back our land, honky," you know, <laughs> which you know, uh, which was hilarious. Yeah. We we smashed it, um, but but because we were controversial, you know, we got cut from the show. We were the mm. oh, no, I'll say this without a fucking. Without, without an ounce of fucking um, arrogance or anything, we were the best. Yeah. We smashed it. But I made a mistake. I went in, our first comedy gala, Willie DeWitt was mentoring me, and I love Willie for the fact that he helped me. And uh, I walked out the back. There was a guy called, um, he used to be um, used to be Andy. Andy, uh, what's his name from TVNZ? He still, he only just. Oh, Andy Shaw. Andy Shaw. Yeah, that's right. He and, ended up being an executive. And he was holding court <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the civic, in the dressing room, and all the comedians were there. And uh, I walked in and I said, hey, has anybody seen, um, has anyone seen Willie DeWitt in the middle of an Andrew Shaw story? 
And he went, what the fuck? And there was a sea of comedians. He goes, who do you think you are? And I looked at him and went, nice one, Stu. <laughs> and I left. A reference to Stu Dennison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, because they were competing. <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, you know, Stu was dressed as fucking guy from ACDC, you know. So, yeah, school uniform. Yeah, yeah. Cat. So, uh, and I left. And I remember um, none of the comedians, they were all just, oh, fuck, we want to laugh, but this is our career. And so I... <laughs> And I left, and Kevin Smith came up to me, and he went, Kingy, that's the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen, but that's going to ruin your career. And, but my attitude back then was, well, I don't give a fuck what these people think. I don't care what they think. I'm not looking for a career in television. You know, I'm a stand-up comedian, pure. And mm. I say whatever the fuck I want to say. So that was always my attitude. And we'll let the people decide. And it was the people that decided that I should be on TV. And that's yeah, what- ultimately, like if, if you've got enough um, enough love from the public yeah. and enough heat around you, yeah. then even if an executive's got an ego issue and doesn't like you, they're going to have to like basically suck it up. And it's a motto that I've taken yeah. through my whole career. You know, even even in mental health, you know, the same thing. I'm blocked at every uh, mm. at every avenue by academics, clinicians, and bureaucrats and, and government. Right? I'm blocked at every avenue. And as I keep saying to them, you can have all the evidence-based reports. You can mm. have all the evaluated material. You can have all the academics and all the clinicians, and you can have all the money. But without the people, you ain't got yeah. shit. So yeah. fuck you. So uh, you know, <laughs> still defiant. Yeah. Right. No, what do you got to? Yeah, you know, yeah. fuck you. Your bureaucratic <laughs> arrogance, and it's the same with TVNZ. You know, the bureaucratic arrogance. I remember true fucking story. An executive at TVNZ told me that. He made Billy T. James. The trouble with you, Mike, you're like Billy T. You don't listen. I made Billy T. James. When he came in here, he was me, me, me. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, so I went went home and, you know, internet was new, but I downloaded a fucking script to Friends and I changed the name from Rangy to Fetu to Wayne and Daryl. And then I just changed the whole prop and I took it and I said, you know, he's talking to me. I said, I've got this fucking sitcom that i've written called flatmates can you have a look <laughs> at it and he read it and he flicked through and has feet on his head and he threw it at me and he went you know that is the most you know that the reason that's those characters unbelievable da, 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 da. and i pulled out the actual friend script and i threw it on his desk and i went you just ripped apart the number one comedy <laughs> in the world what the fuck do you know and i walked out and yeah. that was the target on my uh, back from that day but i, I yeah, did, but i didn't give a fuck yeah and you've got to have that I don't give a fuck attitude. Where, where did that come from? Because um, by this stage, you've you've got kids, you've got yeah, a mortgage. Yeah, yeah. But see, I think that's that's the thing. People with those commitments, it's like they need to give a little bit of a fuck. No, where I, did you? No, I planned. So I left the Merchant Navy. Uh, leaving the Merchant Navy allowed me to pay off my house, and okay. I had two years of reserve funding. Right. So I had two years to make this shit work. Good runway. You know, yeah. so I just, you know, and for me, I don't I don't put a toe in the water, Dom. I've never mm. put a toe in the water. I jump in both yeah, fucking feet. Yeah. I'm not scared of drowning, you know, and I've done that through my whole life. Well, you should have been. You only just learned to swim. <laughs> yeah, I know, but, uh, but that's me, you yeah. know. Uh, I think too often in this world, you know, people are dipping toes in and, mm. you know, and, and with our kids today, 
Too many parents are working, put put 99% of their energy into the kids' plan B. And it's not their plan B, it's your plan B. Yeah. You know, my plan B was being a chef, you know, and I had to wait till 34. I get it. I was lucky, though. You know, I had... Like, I looked like a kid, so it didn't matter that I started at 34. And I had maturity in behind me. I still looked like a kid, but I had maturity. Yeah. So, and I'd had, you know, mongrel mob, merchant, navy, you know, like I had all of these, all of these life's experiences that I could call on. And been through like a marriage breakup by then as well, I would say. I was married to a lesbian woman who used to sleep with other men and other girls, you know. She'd bring other girls home. And make me sleep in the bedroom while they sleep, you know. So I had all of this, you know, my heart had been broken so many times. I, I've never felt like I was good enough. I've always had a massive inner critic telling me I had him, you know, I've lived with imposter syndrome my whole life. It's funny you say that. I've got the same thing as well. And I watched a, um, a David Letterman thing on Netflix the other day, Billie Eilish. She's got it as well. well I, feel, I feel like it's, it's, it's a Kiwi thing as well. No. To agree. No. 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 The biggest problem facing the world's young people today is an overactive inner critic, self-doubt. But what makes it so horrific is they're living in a world where everyone's got their mask on and pretending they've got their shit together. There is no vulnerability in the world. And I knew eight, nine, ten years ago that the new language of life is vulnerability. Vulnerability, truth and vulnerability is what is missing uh, in life. I've been on about this since 2008, just sharing my story of of thing and then. Yeah, so it was like, yeah, it was 2006 where you first came out and said you, you suffered depression. Yeah. Yeah. Which was um well by the way we've been talking for fifteen minutes and we have, we've we've we, we haven't even scraped the fucking surface. Uh, part one of the Mike King podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, but in this podcast, yeah, I, I I ask people about their mental health and I've had like so many messages from people saying, "Hey, it's it's good that you're talking about this." And I'm like, "Fuck no, it's not." Like it's Kerwin yeah. was doing this thirty yeah. years ago. Yeah. You've been doing yeah. it for yeah. It's but the nothing. biggest problem facing people today is an overactive inner critic, imposter syndrome. Yeah. We've all got self doubt. But what makes it worse is everyone wearing their masks and pretending they've got their shit together and everyone's looking at everyone else thinking they've got it all together yeah. and um, so they're in a crisis going I'm the only one I'm the only one that's what our kids are living with yeah, so if yeah. you're constantly being reminded of your flaws if you're constantly being told what you do and you are not seeing any vulnerability you're not hearing any messages um of you know struggle and the only time you hear those messages of struggle is when you mention you're struggling mm. you know oh i know what it's like yeah, yeah dom hey plenty of other fish in the sea mate oh, i had lost my first love too here let me tell you the story yeah. what you think you're saying is this is a universal experience mm. what our kids are hearing is ah oh, shit so I start talking about me and you make it all about you. Yeah. And you came out the other side. You're you're useless. Mm. You're hopeless. Everyone's better than yeah. you. This has created the most toxic environment, you know, that, that there's ever been in the mental health sector. Yeah. And and my generation blame young people. They blame they blame social media. They see it's human nature to blame everything around, oh, this is what happened, and that's what happened. Someone kills themselves because the girlfriend broke up. The girl, So it's the girlfriend's fault. 
No, it's not. That's just the straw that broke yeah. the camel's yeah, back. Yeah. There is a whole lot of lads. And this is what we do, though. We focus on the behavior. I, I, I was down in Otago University yesterday talking to a professor that I want some help with on, on and he, he, he was doing a study. And he wanted to know the effects of job loss, relationship breakups on, on suicide. And I had to tell him, dude, you're missing the reason people are taking their lives. It's not an impulsive act. This one thing that, that wasn't the, re that was just the final straw. Imagine this. You're a kid. You're a young boy. You've never felt valued. You've never felt like anyone cares. You're always, you're looking at yourself physically and go, fucking no one's ever going to love me. I'm a loser. You get your first girlfriend. Oh, man, this girl loves me. But now you start thinking, what if she leaves me? So suddenly, where are you going? What are you going there for? I want to come too. I want to be with you. All the, you become a power stuck to the rock. Mm. You're so clingy that this girl goes, <laughs> Fuck, I can't handle this. I can't breathe. And yeah. she leaves. So now you're going, well, that's it. I you're knew never going to get it. Yeah. Bam, I'm gone. You know, and then we go, it's about the girl. No, that is just the final thing. It's the build up. The single thing behind the majority of suicides is an overactive inner critic. Tell me this. Do you think... Robin Williams was sitting in his room in the last minutes going, well, I'm having such a great day. Billions of people love me. What can I do? I know I'll kill myself. I guarantee yeah. you he was sitting there and having the same conversation that everyone has. Everyone would be better off without you. You're a burden to everyone. You know, all of these little things, you're better off gone. And we did a study on this using, using letters that the Ministry of Health ignored. Three big things that we got out of our study was those who ended their life through suicide didn't want to die. Yeah. They wanted their pain to end. They couldn't live with the pain. One, the majority knew that they were loved, but love wasn't enough. Yeah. And the majority felt like they were a burden and everyone would be better off without them. And finally, it was an impulse wasn't an impulsive act. The overwhelming majority of people had long term issues that they either never discussed with anybody for fear of rejection. Uh, they s couldn't find the help that they needed. They got the help, but it came too late, or the help that was offered wasn't going to yeah. help them. So, so what you were saying about the um, internal voice thing, and I fully agree with you. It's like the biggest bully I've got in my life is, yeah. is me. You would never let anyone talk to you the Fuck way you no. talk to yourself, right? But it makes it makes absolutely no sense. But uh, how do you, how do you fix that? How do you stop that? What's you the solution? Normalize it. So I am hope. What we do in schools is we normalize the inner critic, but we don't take a prescriptive approach. We don't walk into schools and go, this is what you're doing. This is what you need to do to fix it. That's what everyone does. So we use a descriptive approach. We talk about our demons growing up. We allow young people to recognize themselves in our story, and we show them how many people, you know, go through it. So I might share a story about, you know, not being able to take a compliment. Someone come around and compliment me on a painting. Oh, bro, who painted the wall? 
Yeah, I painted the wall. You know, trying to play. Yeah, I painted the wall. Yeah. What's it mean? Far, bro. I didn't know you was a painter, man. You, you, you could do that professionally, bro. And all I'm thinking is, yeah, but I didn't cut it in properly over there. The colours don't match there. I should have sanded that back better. It's a shit paint job. I'm a shit painter. And then I'll go. How many of you kids think like that? Hands up. Don't look. Just look at me. Hands up. And all the hands go up. I said, now look around. Look around. And the next sound you hear is a room full of kids go. Holy, look at all the, look, look. So we normalize yeah. it. And I said, so look how many people have this, but you never admitted it till today, have yeah. you? No one has ever admitted it. Everyone struggles. I remember going to a school, and so we just used the hands up, hands up, and now look around, look around, look around, and we normalize the inner critic. Um, I had a, uh, I did a school. A teacher said, I've got a Maori boy here, country school. I've got a Maori boy here. He's very angry. Can you talk to him? So I went to talk to him. Hey, man, how's he going? Uh, I'm all right. I thought, yeah, cool, bro. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, well, good to see you, my bro. And, you know, I might have a chat with you after the, come and listen to the talk. You might find it interesting. You might not. I don't care. So I went up on stage and I told the story and I did my thing. And at the end of the talk, this Maori boy comes up, right? And he's, Beaming. I said, hey, I'll try what happened to you, man. You look happy. He goes, man, it's so cool to know I'm not the only one that's fucked in the head. <laughs> and that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. If you know everyone else is struggling but they're faking it, the load gets lifted mm. off. So the inner critic and the voice of reason uh, the two things, two constant in every human's life, right? But the voice of, so the inner critic used to keep us safe. Because if you didn't have an inner critic, if you didn't have this doubt, you'd walk up, oh, there's a lovely dinosaur. Holy shit, it's eating me, right? So it used to, it warned you of yeah, danger, yeah, right? Yeah. But when there is no danger, it turns on you mm. and it makes things dangerous. So the inner critic should be 30-70. 30% inner critic, 70% voice of reason. I can tell you now factually that the inner critic controls 95% of our life and only 5% is the voice of reason. The voice of reason has quieted down because we're all riddled with self-doubt and we're all seeing this perfection and we think it's only us. 80% of suicidal kids never ask for help and the reason they never ask for help is because they're worried about what society's going to think, say, or do, and they're worried about disappointing their parents. That's the number one thing kids say. I'm worried about disappointing my parents, sacrificed everything. They've worked two jobs. They built a factory with their bare hands when they were eight years old. <laughs> and, you know, they've given me everything, yeah. and I don't want to go back to them and, and disappoint them. Yeah. So fourth thing, they're worried about what everyone's going to think, say, or do, and they're worried about disappointing people. What's our message to those kids? Hey, if you're in trouble, reach out and ask for help. That's an oxymoron. That's stupid. Why do we continue to put pressure on our most vulnerable to make the first move? Yeah, that's, it's funny you bring that up because that's something I've always thought. It's not like everyone says, hey, if you ever need to reach out, just call me anytime, day or night. But that's, put, that's putting the onus on the sick person. Yeah, that's right. Why do we, you know, what the question needs to be is everyone needs to go home, look in the mirror and ask yourself, what are you doing to make it easy for your friends and kids to ask for help? If you haven't had a mate come to you in the last six months crying and talking about 
his feelings, not my kids are assholes and ungrateful shits and my wife's a bitch, actually talking about feelings. If you haven't had a kid come to you and talk about their feelings, you're the problem. You're the problem. And not because you're a bad person, but you're just someone that I feel I can't talk to because you're too perfect. Mm. You know, and, 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 and making yourself available to people isn't this dude. Hey guys, if you're feeling suicidal, <laughs> you can come to me. I'm there 24 seven. <laughs> making yourself available is making yourself vulnerable. Yeah. Sharing. When you get home from, from work, your kids know that you've had a shit day. They know something's on your mind. But if you don't share that with them, if you don't share the reason for that with them, they'll make it about themselves. Everything is about you. So you get home from work. Your kid says, hey, Dad, how was your day? Fuck, my day was shit. Give me a fucking beer. I'm on the couch, right? Now your kid's walking to the fridge going, what the hell? Did you do that? You must have done something, Dad. You're always pissing Dad off. You know, as soon as he saw you, he was pissed off. But if you got home and go, son, I had the shittiest day. I yelled at one of my employees or one of my co-workers. I made a real dick of myself. Oh, man, I don't know what to say to that guy when I get there tomorrow. But, dude, thank you for noticing. Yeah. Thank you for being there for me, man. Give me a hug. I love you now. Go to the fridge, give me a beer, I'll be on the couch. And your kid's going to walk to the fridge and he's going to be going, I fucking helped my dad. Mm, I mm. was there for my dad. Yeah. You know, and it's a complete, and that builds that self-esteem, that sense of value, right? So every kid in New Zealand should feel good about themselves. They should feel, when they walk into a room, they should feel appreciated by their friends. They should feel loved by their families. Sadly, we've got kids out there who don't feel like good about themselves. They feel like nobody respects them and yeah. no one cares. And as a result of those two things, they shut down from their family and their relationship is shit. So we need to rebuild from the ground up. And in order for that to happen, my generation has to change. I'm sick of people coming up to me and saying, what's wrong with these kids these days? This is the greatest generation of kids in the history of the world. They have more empathy, more sympathy. They have more um, uh, great ideas. They have more caring than any other generation in the history of the world. We are fucking them up with our old school, you know, protect, provide, give your kids a better opportunity and never yeah. show weakness. Yeah. And we need to change. Stop telling kids what to do. Start showing them what to do. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, my God. We, we've been talking for an hour. Have you got anywhere to be? Or? No. no. Okay, cool, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this chat. And there's still so much more to – shit, you've done the work. Huh? You've done with, – um, with your comedy, you did the work, and you got very good. And, and now I can tell you've like put the same – energy and enthusiasm into well, the so stuff what I you've did, done. But, the... but I did what everyone else, I didn't learn in books. In the in the last 10 years, I've spoken to nearly 300,000 yeah. kids. Personally, when they contact you, it's a genuine contact. I give my number out to corporates and I get wankers trying to sell me shit. You know, <laughs> these kids are genuinely there and nine out of 10 times it's concerned for someone else. Yeah. You know, I've got a friend who's this and I've got a friend who's that. Uh, or it's about themselves and they just need reassurance that, you know, one, there is someone there, and two, that their thoughts are normal. 
So I've been out, I've done the yards, and everything I say is not my opinion. This is what kids are telling me. And so when I get people, well, that's your opinion. No, actually, it's not my opinion. You're just passing on feedback. um, This is what your kids are telling me. Well, I disagree. Well, that's like saying, dude, I've just told you I like Kentucky Fried Chicken. And you've gone, (laughs) I disagree. You know, and I said, everyone likes K fried. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of you, course. You can't disagree with this. Yeah. You can't disagree with a fact. Excuse You're a busy me. man, Dom. You're a busy um, man. Yeah, so you came out and um, said you suffered from depression in 2006. Do you think. Um, it had been there your whole life. You were an angry dude for a while. Yeah. Was it was was that just your way of like projecting the depression? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. So when I got famous, you know, that was supposed to change my life. I always thought fame and fortune was the ultimate goal, yeah. being world best at whatever it is, right? And in my mind I you know, I expected that moment was gonna be big. It was it was like these these two Gates would open, golden gates would open. There'd be a ticker tape parade. <laughs> the king had arrived. Yeah, and you know people would be throwing confetti and singing your name. Girls would be throwing panties. <laughs> it was going to be. It was the ultimate, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like winning lotto, a billion to one shot, and I fucking got it. I was mm. the first. And then these gates open, and there was my big head going. You're still a fucking loser. You should be flipping burgers. And for me. When your when your whole life had been set for this moment, and it didn't pan out, for me that's when my inner critic got really loud, and it was constantly taunting me, and that's when the drug and alcohol use took over. Yeah, now, so you, now, you 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 loved your coke. Hey? I love my coke. So, so, I started a travel agency, Dom when Coke was in yeah. short supply in New Zealand, <laughs> just so I could fly around the world yeah. when it ran out. How crazy is that shit? So I'm, I'm guessing like it, it started as um, like, like a fun thing. So you'd, you'd do a show, whatever, have, have, a, have a bag of gear. And then, uh... Uh, so the first time I tried Coke was in 96. Right. 1996. Um, I was at a gig in Monaco. Um I was with another American comedian called Todd Hanford, and we just finished this gig, and a guy came over, and he shook my hand and said, that was amazing, and he palmed me some gear, right? Mm, mm. Now, lots of people have been palming me gear. It was all usually always weed. And so I got this thing, and I went into the toilet, and it was a block of Coke. And I didn't know really what Coke was, so I said to my American comedian, hey, man, what's this? Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. So he dropped down the toilet seat, and he lined us up two lines, and I smashed my line, and then I immediately vomited, like, you know, just fucking, whoa, what the fuck is happening? And I threw up. And everything that I've become addicted to in my life, Alcohol, I threw up. Cigarettes, I threw up. Coke, I threw up, right? So I thought, I'll never get addicted to this shit. What a fucking, this is what this shit is. Mm. I'm out. As soon as I walked out into the, into back into the, the bar, every single conversation in this place 
was crystal clear to me. I could hear different groups talking. There was a group of university students who just lost a friend of theirs. There was a, another group of people that were going to get married. A group of, but I could hear every conversation. These university students were, were talking about some scientific thing. And out of my ring binder of memories, something popped up that was associated. So I was able to enjoy the conversation. And these people were like, holy shit, you're a whole lot more intelligent. But when I talked to the people, I just lost them. My empathy level was right there. I could reach the level of every single one. And it was like magic for a comedian to be that connected with people in the room. That was like the ultimate. It so was, you felt like it made you a better person immediately, like it gave huge, you huge. Yeah. Of course, it turns a lot of people into a dick. Like they're, they're just like and it does eventually. conversation hogs, and it does, and yeah. it does eventually. And that's exactly what happened. You know, after years of use, of course, that's what happened. So, and then in nineteen ninety seven, maybe eight months later, um, I end up going to London. And spending six months on the uh, six or eight weeks on the scene up there, and same thing. I did a gig, and a skeezer come up to me afterwards. Yeah, right. you ever need like you know the rings, the whole nine yards, yeah, the yeah, two yeah. floozies. He was a local drug dealer. Whatever you need, whenever you need it, you give me a call. That was the funniest thing I've seen. So for the next six weeks, I was in coke heaven. I didn't have to pay, but it was right, only fifty right. quid. Yeah, fifty quid a gram, you know. So and it was a real deal, mm. not like the shit that they were selling back here. <laughs> and um, so for me, that was you know. And then I ended up in Vegas, and yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and, so when did when did it stop being stop being fun and like start being a chore? Or it never stopped being fun. <laughs> it never ever stopped being fun. Yeah, but um, but okay. I knew it was destroying me. Yeah, I knew it was destroying me. I knew, you know, the stage of my career. You know, but like six sixty. You know, I'd done all the town hall tours. You can only do town halls. You can only play yeah. Eden Park a certain amount of times, and then the rooms get smaller. You know, I, I the first town hall tour I ever did was in 2000 with Radar. You know, we sold out, you know, the St. James Theatre fucking twice. Yeah. Not once, twice. You know, we were playing every major town hall in the country, mm. you know. Like, I had that much money, I, you know, like... On this tour, I used to get my manager to come and pick up a fucking briefcase of cash and take it home, yeah. you know? Wow. It was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous time, you know? I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I start out with, you know, an hour of material. I get home with three hours of material because so many things were happening and the coke was flowing, so ideas were flowing, and I was just living and breathing comedy 24-7. Um but the room started getting smaller, and you yeah, know, and yeah. the 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 cost of the coke was getting higher and higher <laughs> and higher, and I, you know, and I was, you know, when you're worrying about finances, you end up being an asshole, mm. you know, and you're blaming everybody else, and you know, young ones were coming up, and then the then the um the fucking newsboy thing started, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. So now that you bring that, like most people wouldn't wouldn't remember that, but um. 
So uh, there was a sketch on like eating media lunch or yeah. one of the one of the and, and that show shows. wasn't fucking rating at all. Right, there was no. Yeah, it was rating. a niche. It was a niche yeah. sort of show, not a mainstream 10, show. Yeah, it was on a ten thirty at night, and there was a uh, a dog that was Mike King, and he was snorting fucking or smoking pee or something. And of course, I was. But of course, I went into denial, saying, "How fucking dare you! Like you've crossed the line." Yeah, so you left a voicemail message saying, you, 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 "No, I left you, it on a mate's phone." Right. I left. You tell your fucked up friend <laughs> that he's fucking with the wrong guy. Who the? But but for me, right? I'm old yeah. school. Yeah. I'm old school. Yeah. You don't knock on people. You know, you just fucking don't. You do the lag. You know. So, I, I, but you know, these new kids, they don't give a fuck. So he passed it on to uh, Jeremy Wells, and Jeremy posted it up. And, at the, like, uh, you know, I was big, It was a big deal at the time. Well, I was, here's my fucking phone number. Call me, cunt. Yeah. You know? And I put my phone number on there, and he fucking he didn't take the phone number off, and he broadcasted it. And that basically launched his career, mm. you know? And, you know, if I'm being honest, I'm still a little resentful of that. Really? You know? yeah. yeah. Have you se- have you seen Jeremy? Or yeah, 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 I have. I've learned from the experience, and I've told him, you know, it was probably the best thing that could have happened yeah. to me. Yeah, But I'm still old school. You know what it's like. You've been in radio. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You've had people come up to you and go, oh, Dom, I fucking don't like you. You know, you know <laughs> yeah, I never fucking like I, I don't listen to your shit. Yeah. You know my response to that? Thank you. Yeah. What? I've just fucking told you you're an asshole. Thank you. What, what, what do you mean? I said, I'm just thankful I gave you the opportunity to get that off your chest. Now you don't have to carry it around anymore. I'm an asshole. Guess what? I think I'm an asshole sometimes too. Yeah. So. We talked about the the inner critic before. It's like, you think I'm an asshole. You could never think yeah, of a yeah, bigger yeah, asshole yeah. than That's I think right. of myself. That's right. So. Um, the Jeremy Wells thing, like that that angry message, was was part of that you, like you, your depression, do you think? No, you, because. You angry and didn't know how to express it. No, no, it wasn't. Or? It had nothing nah. to do with oh, it. Okay. He told the world the truth. I was a fucking drug addict. I thought I had it well hidden, but I was a fucking drug addict, and he outed me to the world. He broke the code. He knocked on me to the world. He And and that's what, like, I'm still in the mongrel mob mentality. You know, you knock, you fucking die. That was my, you know, that was my, so he told the truth, and I was in denial. You know, and at the, you know, so at the time, that's what hurt is he told the truth and I wasn't ready to face the truth. And that's what made me angry. And so I went straight into denial mode and I went straight into attack mode, which has always been, you know, how, how I've operated. You sort of fight your way out of things or or retaliate. Yeah. Yeah, Let's find this alleyway, dude, and let's sort (laughs) this out. You know, that that was, that was my mentality. Yeah. And and the irony is, you know, he'd probably give me a fucking good hiding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. He'd need some rules, like just no, no face punches. <laughs> okay, so um, you said before, like um, you bought a travel agency. Yeah, uh, Travel King. Travel. Oh, really? You're traveling in the right company. So, well, you know, <laughs> our, our logo was a Playboy bunny smoking a cigar. Right. You know. You know. So I'm just. I'm I'm pinching my nose as we talk about it's this. Bringing back memories. Yes. It's just, I'm just like, hey, yeah. But that was just a time. That, that right. was a time. Am I proud of that time in my life? Um, no, not really. Would I oh. change it? No. It gave me legitimate experiences. You know, you can't. You know, 
other people would read about this shit in a book and then speak like experts. You've got to live it, man. Yeah. You've and I suppose all these all these experiences brought you to where you are and the man you That's are right. today. That's right. But, um, so, so through this travel agency, you ended up um, – where were you? You are in a hotel somewhere, like Hong Kong or somewhere. Yeah, I was in a Hong, Hong oh. Kong hotel. Yeah. So what happened was I had a, in 2007 – Yeah. Um, I had a massive stroke. I was over. That's in Melbourne. You're in yeah, Melbourne. Melbourne. I was yeah. playing in the Aussie Millions Poker Tournament, ten thousand five hundred dollar entry yeah. fee. I was taking a shit. Uh, I had a <laughs> massive stroke, and my mate saved my life. Mm. Um, I had locked in syndrome, so I was a complete fucking dribbler. Um, on the stroke, how long? Not that long, maybe eight hours, but it was a lifetime. Fuck, terrifying. Yeah. So. Um, I have locked-in syndrome. I can hear everything. I can understand what everyone's saying. I can converse in my head. But the only thing coming out of my mouth was dribble miles. My face had dropped the whole the whole nine yards. And so um, I have this stroke. I go to the hospital. I hear the doctor saying, you know, like, hey, where's his wife? My mate said she's on her way. Good. Uh, she He said she'll be here this afternoon. He goes, too late. He got four hours to get the thrombolizing drug in him. And um, and my mate said, I'll give you permission. He goes, no, nah, because if we give him, he could die. So either he gives us permission or his wife gives us permission. So you, could, you couldn't even give the thumbs up or anything? Oh, in my head, I'm going, give me the fucking, yeah. give me the drug, give me the drug. So um, my mate grabbed my head and started yelling with the mad butcher, you know, like, come on, mate, come on, mate. And, and it registers. And his breath stunk. I'll never forget that. <laughs> like, you know, like he hadn't brushed his teeth. He hadn't done anything, you know, like, and his breath. And I fucking Richie, your breath stinks. And he got me out. It took me half an hour to actually formulate words. And the first sentence out of my hair, uh, out of my mouth was, give me the drug. And the guy went, give me the fucking drug. You know, I tried to get up off the table to show him that I was, no, no, stay there. You've got the drug. You've got the drug but we need to do a CAT scan first. They put me in the machine, and I had another stroke in the machine. Now, that was terrifying. It's like you're nearly drowning. You're about to be pulled into the boat, and someone goes, nah, and pushes you back under the water. What, what does the stroke feel like? Uh, it feels like, for me, it's different for people. Some people have pain. But for me, it was like, you know when you stand up too quick, mm-hmm. and then you get that, whoa, that, right. and you're in a permanent state of, whoa, mm-hmm. and you're waiting for it to clear, and it just doesn't. Yeah, and you're just sitting there, and so you're living in this kind of echoey world. I can hear everyone again, and the nurse has been talking to me, and I've been talking back to her. And then she pulled me out. She went, "Oh, I wondered where you've gone. You'd had another. You've had another stroke." And they took me into the other room, and the doc said, "Well, we can't give him the drug." And my mate looked at the doctor and went, "He gave you fucking permission. I was here. He go, he go, all right, I'll fucking give him the drug." So he gave me the drug, and. Mm. And I came out of it. So like that's as close to death as anyone would want to get. Uh, what was terrifying wasn't the oh. thought of death. What was terrifying when I was lying there in the second stroke, it was like someone's going to have to wipe my ass for the rest of my life. Someone is going to have to fucking spoon feed me baby food for the rest of my life. So when I came out of the stroke for the second time, um, I grabbed my mate's shirt, I pulled him down, and I said, if I go back, pillow me. And it was all a fail. You think he would have done, have done that for no, you? No, well, here's the thing. I got home six weeks, you know, six weeks later, I invite Richie and his wife up. And my mind's still a blur, you know. And I 
pull them out to the garage. And I didn't know if I'd said it or not. And I said to Rich, in the garage having a beer, and I said, did I say anything to you when I was in Melbourne? He goes, no, no. Oh, why? He goes, I just thought I'd said something. Obviously, I just imagined it. No, no, no. Okay, I never said anything. He goes, what, pillow me? <laughs> and I was like, fuck, I did say it. He goes, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I go, would you? He goes, well, we'll never know, will we? Oh. And I was like, you know, I was like, oh, fuck. But and then I spent the next two years in a fog. But I vowed to give up. I vowed to give up drugs, you know. And I, I was committed two days out of hospital with my with my poker mates, you know. Come into the toilets for four. We've got a line for you. I've just had a fucking stroke, man. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to have that. Yeah. And I was determined. Uh, then I got home and I had a uh, block of coke in the house. So I called Titanic. It was fucking <laughs> like an iceberg. Yeah, it was fucking, and it was pure. And um, I could hear it calling me as I'm, you know, driving home. I'm not supposed to be drive drive home. Yeah, uh, drive down the driveway, and I started chopping up. And um, it's remarkable. You think like an like a near death experience like that that that'd be enough to scare you well, straight? No, that's what that's the hold it had on me. Ah. So I get um, so so. Then I was uh, when Titanic ran out. I was able to give up. <laughs> I was able to give up. How many grams was Titanic? What do you reckon? Oh, she would have been oh close to an ounce. Right. How many grams were in an ounce? Uh, I have to excuse my ignorance here. Thirty-two. Fuck. So th- this is so like ten grand worth. Yeah, easy. Fucking easy. hell. And not chopped either. So right, it right. was like you know they started chopping it all up when we got back to. Mm. Titanic was massive. <laughs> yeah, so um so anyway, um I gave up for three weeks mm. and then I had a tour to the Hong Kong seven. So I'd given up drinking cigarettes and um and thing and I was on the straight and narrow and my voice of reason oh, Yeah, Mikey, we've got this, we've got this and the inner critic was yelling, but nah, the voice of reason. And so I get over to what's the name? There's lots of alcohol, you know, I'm on a Travel King tour, so we've got a whole lot of expectant people. I get everyone sorted out, I sit them up, and I refuse to go to the game. I can't go to the game because I'll start. So I'm in uh, Wan Chai, which is the, you know, the the big party place. Um, And I'm in Wan Chai, and I'm just aimlessly wandering around, and a Māori boy comes walking down the street. Brother, hey, Mikey, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, man, I'm just wandering around. Got a team here. To You're not going to the Sevens? No, nah, I'm bored with footy. He goes, let's go have a beer, bro. And I'm like, man, I just gave up. And he said these words. I'll never forget it. You've given up in New Zealand, bro. <laughs> and I went, fuck, you're right. Straight in, I'll have a Heineken. He went at a Heineken. First fellow walked past. Can I have one of those fucking cigarettes? Puffing away, puffing away, and then I'm um, straight into my dealer. Go, hey, how are you? How do you how do you have a dealer? Do you just have a dealer in every country? Right, man, right. You know, and Hong Kong sounds like a dangerous place to be doing class A gear. No, it's very right. safe. Yeah, you know, it's all, like, in terms of the penalty if you get caught or yeah, the but you know, the people you buy off are basically buying the police off. So right, okay, you know, so I get him and uh, I get half an ounce of coke. Because I've been waiting for your call. What's been happening? Da da da, and I just just fucking drop me the gear, would you? So and then I went back to my hotel and then I started snorting and then I got really fucking angry with myself. I couldn't you let yourself laugh. down? Yeah, I couldn't fucking and 
you know, and I just started snorting and then, I, you know, I just wanted to die. And I didn't want to hang myself or OD on anything else because that would affect my family. But in my head, it made sense that my king rock and roller went out ODing on, on coke. Yeah, it's like a real Belushi way to go yeah, out, isn't so it? so I yeah. just snorted everything that I could and passed out on the floor. And um, so, in a, in a way, it was a like a suicide. It was kind of a suicide. That was a suicide. No, I wanted to die. Right. That, that was my plan. I was just going to die. You know, I've just snored enough coke to kill me. You know, and you know, half an ounce is a pretty good job. You know, you, you, you more than enough to die. Yeah. Um, and I passed out. And when I was passed out, my then eight-year-old daughter magically appeared sitting on my chest going, what are you doing, Dad? Why are you doing this? We need you at home. You shouldn't be doing this. And it was like she was fucking right there. Mm. And um, I woke up and I went, what the fuck? I flushed what I had left of the cocaine down the toilet, uh, rang in New Zealand, booked a flight back home and got off the plane. I fell out of the plane on April 1st, um, 2007 and haven't picked up since. Wow. Yeah, just so I gave up drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes on the same day right. and just gone through 15 years. Your life's been miserable ever since. No, uh, no, no. People, people used to say to me in those years, come back and they go, you know, uh, you look great. Yeah, I look great on the outside. I feel like shit on the inside. <laughs> when I was with the Coke, I looked fucking shit on the outside, but I felt fucking great mm. on the inside. Uh, but it's been a journey. It's been really, yeah. really, really hard, you know. I, think, and, I, I suppose now. And I'm, like, you know, I, I, I'm a guy that protects myself. So when I was doing comedy, everyone goes, you treat your wife like a fishwife. No, uh, I'm protecting myself. You know, um, if I sleep with one woman, I've got to sleep with a thousand. So I made it very clear in my comedy that I was married because I didn't want to fall into that trap. Right. So when I – Well, you mean in terms of your addictive personality? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a protection. So I'd be sitting in in bars with a woman and people come up and go, that's not your wife. Who's this? It's actually my sister-in-law. Here's my wife coming. Oh, sorry, Mike. I did – you know, Mm, so it was designed to keep me safe. Um, and so then coming out about my drug addiction was the next logical step. It was always designed to keep me safe. Yeah. Okay. I had no plan. It was just like, if you're going to do this, this is what we're going to do. And then I had a whole lot of people watching for me. If I went to the toilet, people would magically appear. Just thought you were coming in for a chop, mate. <laughs> hey? <laughs> yeah. So, you know. So have, have you been offered it since? Oh, heaps. Yeah, and, and... Come on, bro. It's just that's mean. Just us. You can yeah. have one. Come on, bro. No desire anymore? Oh, or the just, desire yeah, okay. never yeah. goes. It never goes, right? I always thought, Dom, that I could go back and uh, have a beer, you know. And last Christmas, I discovered Heineken Zero. I knocked off that first box in about 20 minutes. (laughs) Seriously. And then the next day was another box, and the next day was another box. Yeah, yeah. You know, my wife went. Heineken Zero, like it it tastes the same as normal Heineken, but you're not getting any any kick out of it, any buzz. Just remind, like the first time I drank the box, I got faux drunk. My wife says, you know you're getting louder. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. (laughs) I got fucking faux drunk, you know, because I hadn't, and it was – um, you know, in the end, after a 
few days, my wife said, you can't do this. You know, like, look at you. You're just fucking going nuts mm. on this shit. So we had a rule. For every hour of yard work that I did, um, I was allowed a beer. So that's when I started gardening 24 hours a day. <laughs> but, it's two in the morning. Where's Mike? <laughs> I'm in the garden, doll. <laughs> now, so I've just, you know, I've just, uh, you know, I've given it up again. Yeah, you know, I yeah. just, but it, it was a happy reminder. Like, you know, the thing that I miss the most out of everything is cigarettes. Is that so? I yeah. love cigarettes. Like, I love the smell of cigarettes. All these people, I hate the smell of smoke. I, I, well, fuck you. I love it. Mm. You know, like people get in my car, you don't smoke. Fuck it, light up. Blow that shit on me. I love that shit. You know, no, no, no. I'm not going to smoke in yeah. your car. So, yeah, I've got an addictive personality. Yeah. And was, um, was it hard going off all that stuff, in particular the alcohol and, and the coke and the weed, and then just having to, like, um, I don't know. I suppose you feel particularly vulnerable at that point. Like there's no, it's, you're not taking anything to mask your emotions and, or your feelings. And I'm not going like my mates said. Go to AA. Go to NA. Go to all these. But mm. what you want me to get fucking addicted to a god of my choice? That's not for <laughs> me. You know, it's just not for me. Yeah, it works for some, but yeah, whatever. I, well, yeah. I'm from the school of whatever yeah. works. But I'm yeah. I'm pig headed. Yeah. And then one day I discovered something. Like I've, I'm an addict, Tom. So why don't you use my addictive personality for good? So I got addicted to being clean and sober. Yeah. I addicted. So I counted. I counted days. How are you, Mike? 833, dude. I'm fucking awesome. Well, been 833. So I would just count days. Count days. Count days. For 10 years, I counted days. I was going to ask if you still do it now. You must be like five, whatever thousand. I I have no clue where I'm at now. I I just don't bother. But that's what I needed to do to get me through. I got addicted to use my addictive personality for good. So, um, yeah, so, so it was around this time, like 2007, 8, 9, whatever, that you, you came out publicly and said you suffered depression. Was, um, was that a bit cool? Why did you decide to do that? Uh, again, you know, like, well, it happened accidentally, really. Uh, so I'm, I'm at home. I'm depressed. I'm not going anywhere. Willie Jackson's worrying about me, right? He's on radio. Yeah. He's on radio live and he's worrying about me. You need to go back to work. Fuck you. I don't need to go back to work. I'm fine. You need to get, fuck you. You get out of the house. I'm not getting out of the house. And he goes, um, so he goes, um, Martin Crumb's going off for a week. I'm going to get you that job. You're going to come in and do the, I don't want to do do the fucking radio. You know, you need to get out. What a good mate. So I went in to Radio Live and oh eight hundred seventy six seven four six seven two five Radio Live. I'm my king, you know. And I started reading out the headlines. Oh, you know, today the da 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 da. If you've got a da 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 da, interest rates have gone up point two percent. If you're going to struggle with the interest rate, give us a call. But everyone had done these topics all day, yeah, right? Yeah. And then I come back and I look at the board and no calls. Hey, da 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 da. There's a piece of paper lying down the street. If you have people lying in your street, give us a call. Oh eight hundred seventy six five Radio. <laughs> and we're going to go to another break. And uh, 20 past 10, yeah. 20 past 25 past 10. At night? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Producer goes, uh, we're going to go to break. No more breaks. And then my inner critic started, you know, just start swearing, just start swearing, just start swearing. People will go, don't you? Just tell the truth, tell the truth, tell them there's no one there. So I had this big fucking war going on in my head and it was dead air. Dead air for 30 seconds, and I'm just closing my eyes, and then I went, fuck it, just tell the truth. And I just told her, I said, hey, Ron, uh, there are no calls. 
there have been no calls. I've been lying to you for the last 20 minutes. Uh, and if no one calls in the next five seconds, I'm going to start talking to the voices in my head. Then I closed my eyes and I started talking. You know, the reason no one's calling is because no one likes you. Oh, people like you. They're probably eating dinner. Eating dinner, it's 20 past 10 at night. No one eats uh, dinner at 20 past 10 at night. He's just a loser. You know, why do you always call Michael a loser? Why do you always call him Michael? And this stream of unconscious thought came out mm. of my mouth. And then my producer went, you better take the calls. And I had a full board. And the first fellow I talked to was a fellow, a Maldi boy called Rangi. I knew his uh, Maldi because his name was Rangi. And <laughs> the, first thing, the first thing he said to me was, Bo, 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 I have those voices too. Mm. And as soon as he said that, I just felt a connection. So me and Rangi, we had a conversation, all eight of us. And we were just, <laughs> just, just talking, and yeah. then the next call, and then the next call. And then I had a 12-year-old girl call in, and she was like, "This is." she was crying. She goes, this is never, like I've been having mental health issues, and what you're describing is exactly what it is. And mm. Caitlin was her name. I invited yeah. Caitlin's whole family up to the studio the next night, and they all came up, you know, all of these people who were just connected, Yeah, you know, and – they must have felt so good. Yeah, well, then the next day I went in. We have full border. So the next day I go in and I say, we can talk about all this shit or we can talk about what we were talking about last night. Full board of calls. Full board of calls. And then um, by the end of the week, we were the Nutters Club. You know, hey, yeah. this is the Nutters Club. Let's... It's still going. You're, you're not involved with it anymore, but it's still going to this day. Yeah, isn't it's still the going Club. on yeah. Talks yeah. with Hamish and, um, and Kyle. Um, I just, like... I couldn't do it anymore. Physically, I couldn't do it. 11 to 1, I'm in the schools on Monday morning, and I'm up at 5, so I get to bed at 3. I've got two hours sleep. Monday's easy. I can get through. Tuesday's killed me. It was like the morning after the morning after mm, the night before. Yeah. And in the end, I just had to make a call. Yeah. And my focus wasn't on everyone's mental well-being by that stage. It was on kids. And so... I spent the next five years researching and listening. When I first started, I was like everyone. I wanted to go in, and I thought I had all the answers, and I was going to do this, and I was going to do that, and I was going to do this. And then after speaking in the first few schools, I realized I didn't know what the problem was. Yeah. So I lost board members because they were like, we need to reproduce my kings. We need to get my kings out there. And I'm like, just slow down. I don't know what the problem is. You know, once we discover what the problem is, then we can set yeah. about our task in earnest. And it took me five or six years to understand that the biggest problem we've got is imposter syndrome and mm. overactive and a critic. Mm. Uh, and now it's so obvious, yet we've got all of these agencies that, that won't even listen. They don't even believe it. No, that's not the biggest problem is depression, it's anxiety. No, these are the outcomes of an overactive inner critic, you fucking moron. <laughs> you know, if <laughs> you know, we're, we're always focusing on behavior. Yeah. We never ask what drives the behavior. You know, eating disorders are the biggest problem facing young people today. Yet when you go to the eating disorder clinic, they make it about the food. My daughter's got an eating disorder. And we go to the eating disorder clinic and, you know, right, we're all going to have a shared lunch today so your lovely daughter can see what it's like mm. to eat. Um, you know, and, and every time she says something, that's not her speaking. That's Anna. That's Anna speaking. I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, Anna Rick's yeah. Yeah. Right, and, right. and then one day my daughter said after four sessions, she goes, you know, my problem's not food, eh? Food's not my problem. 
the problem. If it wasn't food, it'd be alcohol, it would be drugs, it would be boys, it would be the gym. I want to know why my brain is making it about the food. And that was the last session we had there. But we focus on behavior. Like we do it with everything, drug dealers, you know, drugs, throw all the dealers in jail. Let's ask the serious question, why are there so many people today that need to be on drugs? Mm. What are the drugs doing? And in 90% of the cases, brother, it's shutting that fucking self-doubt up. Yeah, You know, it's all... Alcohol, you know, same thing. It gives you a break from yeah, temporary yourself. release. Yeah, it's you're escaping. Re- it's yeah. the relentless pursuit of temporary happiness. Yeah. You know, and the irony is people say to me, like my, my friends, you know, what's it like being an addict? You tell me. I'm not an addict. Dude, you go to the gym seven days a week. You miss a day. You turn into an arsehole, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, oh, bro, what's it like hiding things from the missus? You tell me. I don't hide things. Dude, you play golf three times a week. Your mm. missus thinks you play once a fortnight. You're fucking lying. You yeah. know? So the, 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 the thing that most men are addicted to more than anything else is work. You know, I fire money at the problem. I've got troubles at home. I've got fucking troubles with self-esteem. And to cover it all up, I fucking throw money at it. Yeah. So when was I Am Hope Born? When did that come about? Um, th- that was just an accident, really. I was right. working with some suicidal kids. And I was talking to them saying, how can we never talk? Because we don't know who's safe. What does that mean? We don't know who's going to judge me. We don't know who's going to gossip about yeah. me. I don't know. You know, like, I don't know who's safe. You know, I, you know, I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be pointed at. I said, so, you know, we need to do something about that. Why don't we come up with something that signals I am safe? And they came up with a wristband that says, I am hope. If you're, you know, if you're wearing the wristband, what you're saying to people is, I won't judge you. I won't fucking gossip about you. Uh, I'll be there for you. Most importantly, I won't try and fix you. I'm not qualified to fix you. Mm. I won't take on your problem. I'm not qualified, but I'm here to listen. And if you need help, I'll go with you. Yeah. But if you need to offload shit, I will sit here and listen. I will call time on the conversation if I need to. Yeah. But but I'm feeling you, you know, and I have experiences that, you know, similar to yours. So um, I Am Hope was, was born, and, mm. you know, and it just took off. I couldn't believe it. Like in a big way. Yeah, I just yeah. had no idea that it was going to take off, and, you know, Surround the kids, and mm-hmm. so people. So when we were doing our I Am Hope talks, um, the biggest thing that happened. So we talk about our experiences, and we would encourage counselling. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because my counsellor saved my life, and I was saying to the kids, "Look, ignore what the counsellor looks like. It's someone that's not from your circle. It's someone that doesn't have your background. Go to this independent person." And I'd shared my experience. So we made counseling cool. Problem was, some schools didn't have counselors, and in some schools, the the counselor there was related to mum in some way, or was a teacher, and they didn't feel like they could talk. So they'd contact me, and I'd say, just go and see someone private. I'll find yeah. you someone private, and I will pay for it. By 2018, um, those private sessions, which we, we didn't advertise, were running at about $10,000 a month. So we were paying about $10,000 a month for private sessions. Yeah. And then someone came up with the Gumboot Friday idea, you know, having depressions like walking through mud. Most people are hiding it. Why don't we all put on gumboots so people who have depression can see people in gumboots and know mm-hmm. that these are people that care and we can raise money for them. And they said they can, we can raise money for your charity. 
And straight away I went, why don't we raise money for free counselling? But unlike other charities, why don't we donate 100% of the funds to counselling? So I set up a bank account with Kiwi Bank, and the only way it can come out was with an invoice from um, from a counsellor. And we will cover the um, the admin. I'm already paying $120,000 a year in free counselling. That should be more than enough to to cover the yearly rate of what's the name, sir, of the admin. So yeah, yeah. that's that's what we do. You know, unfortunately now there's you know it's it runs at about ten percent the admin. So you know we've only got enough to cover one point two. But I just work my ass off going around to corporates and going around to well-meaning people and asking them to help me yeah. with the admin. And and the admin, none of it comes to us. We outsource the admin. We outsource it to and one hundred percent of that money goes to them. We don't clip the ticket. Yeah, you know it's you know it's. For me, my big thing with people who are collecting money for charity is I always go, how much of my $10 is going to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I very the, thirsty charities. And I it? always ask the kids, so do you, you know, do you get, are you volunteering for this? Oh, no, we get minimum wage. So you're being paid to do this. So some of this money is going to you. No offense, but I'm not, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, yeah. and I got my own charity, you know, so I just wanted to do something that, you know, our kids could, you know, use. And why counseling? This way, because in order for a kid to get free counseling in this country through the Ministry of Health, you have to go to the doctor. The doctor has to diagnose you mentally ill. That stigma follows you because it's on your records for the rest of your life. Then you. Oh, yeah, it makes it hard to get insurance and all then, sorts yeah. of things. Oh, and yeah, yeah, all kind, yeah. Then next thing you, you know, you're also on a long waiting list. And then, you, you know, you by the end of getting in to see someone, you know, they're often burnt out and they don't have time. Yeah. So this way here is. You know, this way here is get in early. So the government see, the Ministry of Health see counselling as a crisis situation. We see it as a preventative situation. So you go and see a counsellor when you're in crisis. Too late when you're in fucking crisis. Yeah, yeah. Now you need the hospital. Our whole thing is if you see a counsellor about a little problem, it doesn't come to be a big problem. And they just help unscramble thoughts. They don't fix you. They help you unscramble your thoughts. They empower yeah. you to fix you. Give you a different way of looking at things. So young people don't want to see counsellors because they're mentally ill. They go and see counsellors to stay well. I had a um, a government, uh, a minister's, um, uh, a minister's aide. You know, his the guy that gives them all his ideas. Ring me up and say, um, "You can't be Friday will never be funded. Why not? Because anyone can use it. What do you mean?" You don't even have to be mentally ill to use it. Okay, you're a fucking idiot. What do you mean? Uh, so you're saying that someone has to be mentally ill to see a fucking counselor. That's like saying to someone, why are you going to a doctor? You haven't had a heart attack. Yeah. Why are you at the hospital? Why are you at the gym? You haven't had a heart attack. I said, kids don't want to see a counselor because they're mentally ill. They go to stay well, you fucking yeah, moron. Yeah, it's the ambulance at the yeah, top, top of the, of the cliff. cliff. It's such a broken system. So what they do is they fund bricks and mortar, right? It's like they set up a taxi company. You've got to have an office. You've got to have the admin. You've got to have lawyers. You've got to have contractors. Then you've got to buy the taxis and the drivers and the counselors. But in order to see the counselor, you've got to go to the taxi rank, and you don't get a choice of what driver you want. You've got to take the first cab of the rank. And this is under their access and choice. So with that, it's between 350 and $2,000, right? 
And this is under access and choice, where there's limited access and there's no choice. Yeah. Under our system, oh, what have we done? We invented Uber. That's all we did. Yeah. That's what, you carry the cost of yeah. the car. You carry the cost of the account. You just charge us what you charge us up front yeah. with all of those things built in. And the average cost is $147. Man, you, you, you've got so much passion and so much energy for this. I can, I can almost see the rage. Do you, um, do, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you keep your own mental health in check? Because it's like, you must, I worry about you and I worry about Jazz Thornton a little bit from uh, Voices of Hope because it's like you, you take a lot on. You take on a lot of other people's problems. And that's no, gotta, I that's, don't. You, no, I but, don't. But people share their, yeah, their yeah, problems with you. That's got to bring you. No, it doesn't. No? You know, want to know why? My job's not to take on other people's problems. My job's not to. I'm, I pathway people. So. Our current system deals with individuals. I'm looking at the big picture. So our focus is this positive, societal, attitudinal change. Remember this. 80% of people in crisis never ask for help because they're worried about what society thinks, says, or does. Yeah. So... Until we change society's attitude, you can have the best mental health system in the world. You can throw a billion dollars a day at it. But if people aren't buying into it, you're wasting your fucking time. So attitudes have to change. So I will listen to your problem. I don't take it personally. I will listen to your the, the, the tale of your son being refused help at, at a hospital and then going back an hour later and being trespassed off the premises to him dying seven hours later, I will listen to that. I will, I will be enraged by that, and I use that as my motivation going forward. Right. Okay. So it's always about – see, Jazz is a bit different. She, you know, she's – she takes everything. I don't take everything on. My – my, is that a maturity thing, do you think? Well, so I, I've just looked at where I can be most effective, yeah. you know, and like I can save individuals, and I don't buy into that argument. If we save one life, it's all worth it, <laughs> I, you know. So, yeah. you know. Shit, you, <laughs> you, get, you get so wound up talking about it, I can tell. You, and I'm passionate. You, yeah, you, you are, know, you are. At the, at the end of the – so we have DHBs referring – people to Gumboot Friday, we cope with their overload. And people say to me, say something. Tell them they can't do it. I, why? It's not about them. It's about the fucking kids. You know, my, you know, my saying is they are all our children. Yeah. When you have been to every decile of school in the country, you will know that in the elite private schools of this country, they have equally as many kids who are fucking struggling with mental health issues, and in some cases more than poorer areas. Yeah. You know, I don't care if you're a redneck piece of shit that hates Maori and hates me. I love your child, and I will, I will crawl over broken glass to get your child the care yeah. that they need. And you've got to have that you've got to have that attitude that everyone 
is equal mm. in mental health. God, you've done some good work, eh? You, do you, do you sleep well at, at night these days? I never sleep, bro. Oh, yeah? I, you deserve a good night's sleep. No, I, you, you should be. I wake up every two hours. My window's 62, Dom. Windows 62 <laughs> does not stop. It does not <laughs> stop. It is always, uh, always working. There are always things that I have to write down. There are always things that, you know, look, I've got 10 years left if I'm lucky. Oh, come on. How, how can you say if, that? Well, I've, I've, had, you, um, you're I've right. had a major stroke. I've got one, one artery working to my brain at the moment. I've had... Two, um, two heart, um, not surgeries, but heart fucking things. Bypass or no? No, or no, no. Um, what stints? do you call them? Uh, yeah, no. no, they have. You know, when you're awake, they put shit through your heart. Right. Fucking. So I've had two of. Those. You got no vices now. You're a healthy dude. That doesn't matter. You yeah. know, I, I smoked for most of my life. I put huge mountains of coke up my nose, and I smoked weed from thirteen years old right up till I was forty five every day. You know, I was a when I left smoking, I was a forty smoker a day. So I'm a realist. You know, if if the big man came out of the sky today and said, I'll give you fifteen years or take you I'll take the fifteen. Fifteen fifteen thank you. Fifteen So you what know, what are you now? Sixteen. So I'm sixty. I've got ten years yeah. left. I'm gonna make him count. Yeah. You know, I I, I, I fucked around enough. I, you know, I, I made, you know, I spent most of my life making everything about me. I, you know, I look at this younger generation and they, they, they need a soldier. You know, they need someone out front kicking down doors and warding off all of the people who tell you why you can't do so. They need someone out there advocating for them. Mm. And I'm going to be out front. Um, so they can go on and change the world. I seriously believe yeah. that they can change the world. They just need someone to take the bullets from all the old fucks out there that are trying to stop them. And that's yeah. my job. I know what my purpose is. I, you know, I know it's a, you know, it's a, it's a huge sacrifice for my family. Mm. You know, in terms of the time and effort well, and energy, you. I'm always out there fighting wars. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm trying to. Spend more time with my wife. You know, she deserves the time. Uh, I have unique ways of dealing with that. And I said, babe, we need to spend more time together. And she went, really? I said, yes, that's exactly what we need to do. Um, I took up golf again at the beginning of the year, so I went and bought her a set of golf clubs. And we go out to the driving range. She's learning. I'm getting her lessons. And we're going to go out and play golf whenever we can. Cool. You know, and I just, I just want to, you know, I, wa I want to give her some quality time. But she knows that we're on a bus and it's going really fucking fast and I'm not getting off the bus. So get on the bus and come with me for the ride and, you know, and, and be with me as much as you can and we'll just see where that takes us. Fuck, what a, what a positive bus as well. Yeah, so yeah. we just... Is this what you're doing now? Is this your legacy, you reckon? Well, your legacy is what other people decide. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is what do you, what do you think? When, when you die, what, do you, what, would you like, what would you like to think people say about you? Oh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, like I always say this to teachers, you know, you, <laughs> you, never, you will never know the effect that you have on kids. You will never know how many lives you change, you know, but your family, your funeral, 
when they see everybody that turns up, when the when the dad's standing there with his five kids and he's saying, this lady saved my life. If this lady wasn't here, this great person wasn't here, none of us would be here. We owe everything to that person. So, you know, and there'll always be people that, that turn up to your funeral and go, I just turned up just to make sure you're dead, you asshole. <laughs> you know, and that's life, know. right? But that's life. Yeah. That's life. You I know. don't know. I think 20 years ago you would have had a bunch of those people, but I feel like that, that crowd has diminished now. Oh, I don't know. Look, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. My, no. my, my soul, you know, legacy, smegacy, fuck. Mm. Is there an afterlife like, or anything? You know, just because you brought up legacy. I remember I went and saw um, Willie Jackson. I want to fucking – I want to say it, right? And I, I was talking to him about, you know, Gumboot Friday and why aren't we getting funding and, you know, here's all of our initiative. Why aren't you? I see you out there fighting for Tamahiri. I see you out there fighting for everyone, you know. Sure, like I'm, 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 I'm not exclusively Maori families, but if we lift up everyone's families, then the, the, the Maori families will come up too. Yeah. Currently we're focusing on Maori families and those numbers are fucking going down, so it's not working. But if we lift everyone up, if, if the, the care comes up for white people, naturally it comes up. So let's, you know, and I'm saying there, and he's like, oh, bro, you know, bro, bro, bro. And I was like, you know how I feel, Willie? And I just said this, right? I said, I fucking just feel like giving back that fucking medal that you guys gave me. And he he went, ha, 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 there goes your knighthood. And he laughed and said, there goes your knighthood. And that fucking enraged me. And I just said, do you, do you think I'm here for a fucking knighthood, pal? Is that what you actually think? I'm yes. not here for fucking knighthoods. And, and that was the day I went home and I said to my wife, I'm giving that fucking thing. So this was the o officer of the Order of Merit yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Merit thing. Yeah, yeah. Surely the, I mean, the I know. The stepping stone to a knighthood. <laughs> well, I know you're not doing any of this for the accolades, but the um the New Zealander of the Year thing in 2019, that must have meant a lot. That, that was huge. Yeah, yeah, that's massive. Because it's a people's award. Yeah. People nominate you, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the, the proudest award that, you know, I ever got in, in comedy was People's Choice in Metro mm -hmm. Magazine three times, you know. I, I, you know, I don't give a fuck what anyone else. And, I, like, you know. It's funny, funny how, like, the, the side of you has never changed. Like, earlier we were talking about um, how you shat on Andrew Shaw, who was a TV executive, and yeah. people were like, oh, you never get on TV. And you're like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. You still get on TV. Who knows? You, you might, even though you don't care about it, you might still get that knighthood, even though no, you're no, you never. Oh, is that no, so? That's burnt now. Oh, okay. Bro. Yeah, you can't, you can't give. Like, you know, the Queen had to say yes. Mm. Like, uh, you know, I had to get a letter from the fucking Queen. Right. You know, and, um, you know, uh, so. Yeah, no, no, that's a bridges burnt. And right. Like, who cares? <laughs> yeah, who, who cares? Who cares, man? <laughs> you know, they, they hand them yeah. fucking things out yeah. like lollies. Like over on Broily one. <laughs> you know, what, you know, it's, uh, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just, and, you know, a lot of people deserve them, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Most you, you do. But you've, yeah, done, but, you've um, done a tremendous but, but, amount of work. Yeah, I know. But that's not the motivation. No, you know, I know it's so, not. But there it's are so many people in the game now that are in it for a fucking knighthood. You know, mm. people are jumping in. Oh, they're giving away knighthoods. So, like, I'll, yeah, I just, look, people first, man. People first. Mm. You know, I I love sitting at Mangere Bridge and, you know, every day people coming up to me and hugging me and telling me about their kids. Man, that's that's the reward right yeah. there, man. That's the reward right there. You know, my team, 
I wrote a book called T.R. and Mac, The Hopeful Black Dog. So it's about a black dog. Um, and the book was about bullying. And, you know, our current, our current uh, plan to deal with bullying is let's bully the bully. Right. You know, yeah. whereas I now know, because I travel around schools, that bullies bully because they're being bullied. And, you know. Yeah, they've got their own yeah, shit going yeah. on. So yeah. let's be kind. Let's, so anyway, I wrote this book. And my team go into primary schools and they read this book to give kids a better understanding of what's going on in the bully's head, but also helping bullies to understand that what you're doing is not love. That's not love. You know, they think love is, you know, is bullying. Um, and, and giving people a better understanding. And a little girl went up to um, my ambassador who read the story and she said, can I talk to you? And she said, yeah, what's up, darling? She goes, did the man who wrote this book know it was going to help so many of us? Mm. And that's yeah. right there, man. That's better than any fucking knighthood. And my eight-year-old daughter, when I when, when she found out I couldn't get, uh, you know, I was never going to be a sir, and she goes, Dad, kings are higher than sirs anyway. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Will you ever do um, any stand-up again, do you think? Um, I feel like, like you're, you're still fucking funny. Like before when you were talking about your big giant head and your, 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 your white pubes. I've, I mean, I've you can do different shit to what you used to do. Look, I don't trust myself. <laughs> no, seriously. I've done it twice since I retired. Only twice. Uh, once, once at Quentin Pongia's uh, aftermatch, mm. and once at the Mad Butcher. Now at Quentin Pongia's aftermatch, like I smashed it. Yeah, there he is. Welcome back. <laughs> and I was like, I, I, I had to leave. Yeah. And the same after Mad Butcher roast, I had to actually leave. I realised how dangerous that it was what, in terms of ego or? yeah and and yeah. It, like it's addictive man if you can like if you can make a room full of fucking people like spit their drink you know that's yeah, a rush it's it's yeah it's i can't do it i just can't i don't trust myself it'd be like i can just have one drink i can just <laughs> tell one joke i can incorporate my comedy in my talks which I do, mm. um, and that's enough. Yeah, it's it's comedy with a difference. And um, if people want to understand vulnerability more, and I watched this woman. My wife went on and on about. We got to watch this thing. You got to watch um, this Brene thing. Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 like everything that Brene says, I've been practicing mm. since two thousand and seven. Yeah, and it was one of those lovely feelings where I had finally had boxes to put things yeah. in. The other, the other, only other moment where I've had that was when I read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping. Point. Oh yeah, I love you that know? book. Yeah, it was like. You know, oh, I'm a maven, I'm a salesman, and I'm a connector, yeah. you know, but I had boxes. You know when you just do things because they feel right mm. and then suddenly you've got boxes? It's the first book I'd ever got to the end and started reading again. I just, yeah. uh, you know. So Brene Brown mm. on Netflix, just it is it is a wonderful read, you know, yeah. and the story I'm telling myself is such a great way of, you know, talking to partners. You know, when you, when your partner's not saying something, you know there's friction and, you know, like you're getting angry because why aren't you fucking talking to me? Hey, babe, I don't know what's happening. 
I know there's something, but the story I'm telling myself is, I did this, 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 and this, and you've did that. No, that's not what I'm thinking at all. Yeah. I'm thinking it's, it's just a nice air clearer. Yeah. You know, the story I'm telling myself, my inner critic is telling me, mm. you know, yeah, I, I must admit I've been a, a late entrant to the uh, vulnerability club. Like it's, it's, it was only a few years ago for me, but I think part of that's because I went to um, probably a similar generation to you, a little bit younger than you. But I went to an all boys school in Palmy North, and any Which any Palmy boys, yeah, fuck so, it. so any the best fucking hucker at Palmy. Oh, did they gave you one? Yeah, they gave Shit. me one. New Plymouth Boys High. Mm. Like I've I've got a. I filmed them all, man. Mm. I, I have got a folder full of huckers from around just about every school. I've got one of the special ones I got after I got New Zealander of the Year was uh, the Crusaders gave me their hucker on their field. That shit means more than a knighthood, no, right? No, it's just, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. it's, it's fine-tuning. So, no, but, uh, you know, we're all changing, but yeah. vulnerability is the new economy, you know, and that doesn't mean we go and fucking just throw our dirty laundry out at everything. <laughs> you know, it's just being more honest. Yeah. When yeah. people say, you know, how are you today, Dom? Instead of saying, I'm good, because it's a natural thing mm -hmm. to say. You know, um, what I say now is, how are you? My inner critic's smashing me, bro. Mm -hmm. You know, and then mm -hmm. suddenly it's not a conversation anymore. It's gossip. Oh, fuck, what happened? <laughs> Well, I walked past Dom this morning, and the fucking asshole just ignored me. And I might be supposed to, but you know what fucking Dom's mm -hmm. like. And and oftentimes when you do that, the other person provide context. Oh well, you know Dom had to take his dog to the fucking vet today, don't yeah. you? The dog got it. Fuck, really? So now it's not about me. Oh fuck, thanks, but I got to go and check in on Dom. Yeah. Fuck, I didn't know about the dog. You know, and that's that's what being honest is about. Yeah. It's looking for ways that you can be vulnerable. Without, you know, without crossing the line of burdening people with yeah. your, I think that's what I should write a book on, actually. Ways to have a conversation without burdening people. Yeah. That'd be a good read. Yeah. I don't write. <laughs> I won't do it. Audio book. I won't do it. Yeah. I won't do it. All right. Hey, um. geez, we've, we've been sitting here for over two hours. and we, Really? We keep going. What a rich life. Yeah, it's, oh, yeah, it's been colourful. I've played rugby with the All Blacks. Yeah, last you know, I like until the last year when I had my last game of rugby at fifty nine. The last game of rugby before that, I was I played with the All Blacks. I was on the tour on the Coca Cola convoy with them in nineteen ninety five. Mm. Uh, they ran out of reserves. I ran onto the wing. Did they pass me the ball? No. Did I touch the ball? No. But get fucked. <laughs> I know that there are other All Blacks who did the same thing. Yeah. I fucking was on the All Black team. Yeah, yeah. I played with the Black Caps. I fucking toured hip-hop artists. Uh, you know, I've been around the world. I've been on the same stage with Dave Chappelle. You know, I just, mm. I, I've, I've had a really, really blessed life. And sometimes when I'm down on myself, I have to remind myself. And, you know, I've got six, uh, five, six beautiful kids. Mm. You know, it's, li li life's, most days, life's good. Other yeah. days, it's shit. Well, you reap what you sow, so you definitely deserve more good days than bad days. Thank you, my brother. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Really appreciate your time. You're a great New Zealander. Oh, thank you, bro. Who's our sponsors? Ooh. I don't know who's sponsoring this episode. Oh, really? I don't know. Ooh. Well, whoever you are, you're amazing. <laughs> and none of this would be possible without your sponsorship. <laughs> there he is, the comedian. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.